Heavenly Father, I pray as we open up your word just now that you would speak clearly to us. Help us to be led by your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Take your Bibles and let's read together from 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, this morning we're going to be using this passage as a launch pad from which we are going to be assessing um, what I call a biblical theology of sex and sexuality. But this passage is a very clear and relevant breakdown of the proper place for sex and sexuality in our lives. We read it. uh, If you would please read it aloud together with me. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Amen. Okay, so we live today in a sex-saturated and sexuality-obsessed world. I think we have to recognize that and acknowledge that. It's no good sweeping it under the carpet. It's no good acting like this isn't something that um, you know we, we, we as as Christians know about, because it is something we know about. And it's time that we be honest about that, even in the walls of the church. And I would say, especially in the walls of the church. If we don't hear God's plan for sex and sexuality in the church, we will be hearing the world's plan, Satan's plan, in the world, and we'll be following that. We won't have any biblical response. So we have to deal with this biblically. You can scarcely walk down the street, turn on the radio or television, listen to music, go to the cinema or open a newspaper without hearing something about sex and sexuality. Any knowledgeable marketeer will tell you, there's a slogan, you've heard it before I'm sure, sex sells. I remember on a trip to the cinema, I'm sure it was um, maybe even when we went, I mean, you, you can't go to a trip to the cinema without seeing these trailers, these adverts that seems to, they all seem to appeal in some way to the sensual appetites of humanity. They all seek to appeal in some way um, to the elements of sexuality so that they, they try to make chocolate sexy. They try to make Coca-Cola sexy. I remember this one Coca-Cola um, featuring a guy and a girl gazing dreamily at a sweat-soaked muscular guy mowing the lawn. 
He's mowing the lawn. You've probably seen this. It's on the TV as well, I think. Both the guy and the girl, they try to run and give this man some refreshment via an ice-cold bottle of Coca-Cola. Um, and the Coca-Cola did look nice, and it looked like it was a very hot day. Um, but they're, they're literally falling over themselves before they discover their mother has got there first. And they, you know, it's, 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 there's an idea that it's, it's meant to be funny, it's meant to be jokey. The guy's interested in the, the guy, the girl's interested in the guy, and then their mother gets the guy. There's another that featured a sort of um, femme fatale stereotype uh, talking sultrily about uh, some particular type of chocolate um, cart door or something um, like that. Eminem's thought that it would be a good idea to feature a joke about an affair. You've probably seen that as well, where um, there's a man who arrives home and he hears giggling behind the door and he, he storms in and uh, he walks in to see his wife indulging in an M&M. It's, honestly, it's a bit tasteless, right? Uh, Levi's jeans showed people across a range of cultures dancing whilst wearing their famous jeans before the screen flashes up. Men, women, young, rich, poor, gay, straight. Let's live how we dance. I don't know what that means, but there we go. Uh, then there was a, a rather far-fetched attempt to get people to buy instant coffee by making it seem desirable um, through some romantically shot uh, cafe encounter between a lusty-eyed man and woman. Uh, I've never heard of anyone having that sort of reaction with instant coffee, but um, they made it happen somehow. Um, so it all points to this reality that Sex sells. That's why it's used in marketing. Yes, I've tried that instant coffee, not as a result of the advert, but probably wouldn't have had I not seen an advert that said it was good. Yes, I've had M&Ms. Yes, I, I, I've worn Levi's jeans. All of these things that they are subversive in how they market, but people, people still buy the produce. Because in some way, whether we like it or not, or whether it's intentionally playing on us or not, sex sells. In the USA sitcom, The Office, uh, there's an opulent and hedonistic boss in some of the later seasons named Robert California. And he, he sums up the current state of Western civilization um, to some bemused colleagues who don't really know what to make of this guy. He says, all life is sex. There is only sex. Everything is sex. Do you understand what I'm telling you is a universal truth? Filmmaker Woody Allen says, I don't know the question, but sex is definitely the answer. Only just um, a while back, I was, as I was walking, I heard a guy laughing with his date, going through a list of people they knew who each other had been with. And they were just laughing away, talking about how they had been with this person and been with in the biblical sense, um, who they had slept with and had sex with. And basically the guy laughed, I've basically been with everyone but you. And yes, she continued to walk with him. And they laughed along. Christians are often accused of being obsessed with sex and sexuality. You've probably heard that before. Oh, you're... 
You, you, you like, you're obsessed with this. Why do you go on about it? You, 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 we're told to keep our beliefs out of the bedroom. I remember listening to a parliamentary debate in the House of Lords where uh, the topic of marriage came up and what marriage is and how we define marriage. This is all the way back in 2013. And one of the peers there stood up and he, he said, it's time for the church to get in step with the world. Now, if that hasn't missed the point of what the church is meant to be doing, I don't know anything else that has missed it more, to be honest. It's um, the church getting in step with the world. Where we see that, the church ceases to be the church. Where we see that, and where we see people who profess faith in Christ adopt the world's ways of walking in step with the world, they show that they are not of God's people. Remember in 1 John we read, they went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. It's talking about God's people. Tragically, I have had a front row seat to many people leaving their profession of faith and almost... Always, it has something to do with sex. They find the Bible's teaching on it inhibitive or prohibitive. And they rather go the way of the world than the way of the Lord. We must teach a biblical theology of sex and sexuality. It is a necessity. We must, first of all, positively affirm the parameters of God-given sexuality. God created sex. He created sex. Both the sexual anatomies of male and female that are complementary in nature Unique, distinct, yet compatible, as well as the sexual activity in which these anatomies are joined. He created the root to sexual attraction and the means for sexual fulfillment, whether found in the union of marriage or in commitment to singleness. God created sex. Would you say that aloud with me? God created sex. Why is it? That some people, there's two extremes, I find. Some people will look at sex and they'll say, regarding Christians, they blush when they speak, you know, that they don't have any concept of it, which isn't true. But we sometimes act like we don't have a concept of it. For whatever reason, we're still in this framework where we feel ashamed of the God created, God given way through expressing romantic attraction in the context that God has created. Marriage. We'll come to that in a minute. God created sex. The second point, God established the sexes in creation. Now, this is crucial because you cannot have sex without the sexes. Male and female. And I use those term, the term sex instead of gender deliberately. 
Gender is a terminology that has um, been hijacked and many people, I've heard even professing Christians, um, in one case the individual concern, um, abandoned the faith over this sort of stuff, um, say, no, gender, anyone can be what they want to be because gender is a socially created construct. It's a social construct. Right? And on one hand, you can, you can make that case and say, okay, yeah, so if... In that sense, there's male, there's female, and there's all manner of other genders, but that doesn't make it valid. It doesn't make this ideology valid. There is only male and there is only female. That is how God created things. He established the sexes, male and female, and male and female alone in creation. Now, that, please understand, this is the created order. There are, as a result of our fallen world, extremely rare anomalies where individuals and the scriptures speak to these. Don't act like the scriptures. The scriptures speak of people who are born eunuchs. Right. There's there's not a distinctive male or female element in their anatomy. Hermaphrodites is um, a, a term that's been used to describe these individuals. There are other, other terms that are out there. There are very rare conditions. They are the result of living in a fallen world. These are individuals who have been born, as the scriptures speak, as eunuchs. But God established the sexes in creation, male and female. He embeds one of these in us. And the fundamental identities of male and female are unchanging from conception. Aside from anatomy and biology of sex, God entrusts the act of sex for human flourishing through procreation and encourages sex for purity and pleasure within his parameters. That passage we just read speaks of the marriage relationship, wives and husbands. And and while this passage deals with a, a range of issues, you can draw from it applications related to um, to, to just normal interaction in the household, leadership models in the household. You can draw applications of it in, in regard to um, d- domestic abuse and violence even. You can talk, as we will uh, in a minute, um, about, about pornography and how the applications in that passage from that. The whole idea is purity, purity, purity. What is good and right and pure? Do good. Do not fear anything that is frightening. Live with your wives in an understanding way uh, to the husbands. Show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they're heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Well, the terminology of sex and sexuality does not come up there. Wives and husbands are expected, biblically, to be in a sexual relationship. That's... That's biblical. Genesis 1, 27 through 28. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, do you know what God said? Be fruitful. Be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 2.18, the Lord God says, and this, this is a, 
a rewind and a review of the creation story, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Fast forward, woman is created. Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So God entrusts the act of sex for human flourishing. And it's clear there uh, that this human flourishing occurs through procreation, which is in the sexual acts and encourages sex for purity and pleasure within his divinely created parameters. Proverbs 5.19 clarifies some of those parameters. Drink water from your own sister. Gushing water from your own well. Should your fountains flood outside, streams of water in the public squares. They are yours alone, not for you as well as strangers. May your spring be blessed. Uh, well, okay, I, you know, we all drink water from our taps, right? What, what, what's this about? He's speaking in pictorial language. And it's in the context of what follows... Rejoice in the wife of your youth. She is a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts intoxicate you all the time. Always be drunk on her love. That's there, Proverbs 5.19. So, what do we get from that? This parameter that God sets is in the context of your marriage. Not in the context of messing someone else's up. In the context of your marriage. Not in the context of, you know, going outside of your marriage in some other way. In the context of your marriage. Drink water from your own cistern, he says. Have your wife be intoxicated in her love. Always be drunk on her love. Song of Solomon is filled with a positive portrayal and affirmation of romantic love and sexuality in the context of marriage. Yes, it points to other things. Yes, it does. But you cannot read Song of Solomon and deny the sexual element. You can't. It's impossible. 1 Corinthians 7 urges married men and women to enjoy one another in sexual intimacy and to meet one another's mental, emotional, and physical needs through this. 1 Timothy 4 indicates marriage and its benefits is created by God and actually says that those who teach against marriage and who promote asceticism have adopted doctrines of demons. So, rules of celibacy and forced celibacy on religious leaders. Doctrines of demons. The idea that someone is purer or more holy if they do not marry or if they remain a virgin throughout their life through a means of enforced celibacy, doctrines of demons, right? That, that's, that's some of what the Protestant Truth Society regularly deals with. That's why this initiative came to be because there are organizations out there, there are churches out there the Roman Catholic Church is, is one. 
Um, but this has tragically crept into um, Protestant circles in, in various ways, non-Roman Catholic circles, where, wherein there's this view of asceticism being holier than what God created. So it's like we make up our own, our own world where, okay, yes, God created the sexes, God created sex, God told man to be fruitful and multiply, but you know what, actually, we think God actually would prefer it if we don't do any of that. We think God would actually be happier and would view us in, uh, as more holy if we neglect what he created, if we just try to refrain from that, if we don't encourage that. So we're going to ignore what God said there because what God really wants is for us all to be celibate. That's not true. But that is exactly some of the teaching that the early church was facing. That's what Paul is dealing with in 1 Timothy 4. There's that extreme. But then there's the extreme of licentiousness. Right? That's anything goes, basically. That's the opposite extreme. Celibacy here. And then anything here. Hebrews 13 urges that the marriage bed is kept pure. Indicating not only staying from what is impure, but affirming and acting on what is. Now, one of these big issues that we have to deal with is in relation to pornography. Pornography is one of those features of sex and sexuality in our world that we may be even in this place most affected by. The statistics are not encouraging. Statistically, it is likely that someone here in this room has this past week viewed pornography. Maybe nothing extreme. You might, you might be right now even rationalizing, oh, well, it wasn't, it wasn't quite that. Was it quite that extreme? But I have to assume that there's someone here this week, based on statistics, which are pretty grim, we're talking 90 plus percent, that someone here this week has viewed pornography, and you're trying to excuse it in some way, you're trying to rationalize it in some way, you're trying to make it um, acceptable in, in one way. You know, I've, I've heard people say, well, didn't Paul say he struggled, and he said that... that the things he wanted to do, he didn't do. And the things he didn't want to do, he did do. Paul was not talking about a porn addiction. He wasn't. Stop creating loopholes where God's grace gives you license to sin. That's not what that's about. You say, well, it's not, it's not really pornography. Well, okay, on Instagram or all manner of other social networking facilities, YouTube, Pictures that crop up that you know are pornographic or what the culture likes to soften as soft porn. It doesn't show a sexual act, but it triggers your mind and leads your mind down that road. That's probably something that affects more people in churches 
than some of the more extreme stuff. Maybe visiting prostitutes. Who knows? Maybe someone here has had that struggle in an ongoing way. I, I can't assume, I cannot assume and be faithful to God's word that there are people in this church, in any church, that are not struggling with these things. I know people. I prayed with people. I have sat next to people on journeys who have given off a, an air of righteousness and holiness and dedication to God's way. Who I have discovered eventually have lost their ministries due to affairs. Who I have discovered have, even as I was talking with them, been in ongoing, inappropriate contact. Sexual contact with someone else outside of their marriage. People who have, at times in churches I've been in, prayed the loudest prayers. And yet have been probably the most addicted to pornography. When the scripture says flee sexual immorality, the word there is porneia, from which we get porn, pornography. When the scriptures speak of divorce being something that is hated always by God, but in some cases, in some cases may be necessary, in some cases accepted. When it says sexual immorality is the basis for that, we have to conclude on the basis of a comprehensive overlooking of Scripture that pornography addiction must be a part of that. It is something that you need to kill if that is something you're struggling with. And it can only be done through constant prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit. As many parameters are, that we've, we've talked about right now is with any parameters, they're positive affirmations. We've given some positive affirmations. God created sex. He established the sexes in creation, but there are negative prohibitions. We've already touched on a few of those. Exodus 2014, you shall not commit adultery. Leviticus 18 speaks about incest, having sex with your relatives. Homosexuality, having um, sex with the same sex. Bestiality, having sex with animals. All of these are outside of the parameters God sets for sexuality and are looking at several other laws um, dealt with in Leviticus, um, such as uh, necrophilia, having sex with dead people. Um, all, all of these we, we, we might look at and say, well, they're unthinkable. They're almost unthinkable, but I'm not going to go through them. I, I sometimes have very large posters when I give this particular talk. Uh, there's some grim headlines that show... Um, that show bestiality is, is much more widespread than you think. These are mainstream headlines. Cambridgeshire man watches bestiality porn and made indecent images of children. Angus man who had porn involving dogs, pigs, cows, and houses jailed for keeping animals in breach of ban. I won't read on. Um, there's that. You can have a look if you so choose. Necrophilia. It's in the news even this week. Right? This is relevant stuff. I've heard people say, what, do, do, do people really do that? I mean, that's in the Bible there. It gives that law, but 
Why is that even there? Yes, people really do that. You know. Jimmy Savile. It's just a big, big headline name. Just this past week, I can't remember the guy's name, um, you know, who was going through social media profiles. But even before social media, I think since the 1980s or something, a, a cleaner, I believe, in a local hospital gained access to mortuaries and was having sex with dead bodies. This stuff happens. It happens. And it's, it, it's, it's a part of living in an evil world that is dead set against our creator. The scriptures are filled with warnings against sexual immorality, indicating that not only are there parameters to God-given sexuality, there are perversions of God-given sexuality. So it's not just that God gives parameters. He gives a list of what he considers perverse. We like to focus on the positive, and that's great. That's fine. That's right. But we have to, we have to be honest about what's perverse, or else we won't truly understand the parameters. Unfortunately, things did not remain very good in God's good creation. And that was as a direct result of our sin. In Genesis 3, mankind sins, and with the consequences comes sexual perversion. We, we see the accumulation of wives as property from very early in the Genesis narrative. We see the breakdown of healthy marriage relationships begins when in, in Genesis 3, God in doling out the consequences, uh, not, not acting outside of mercy. He was merciful. He could have ended everything right then and there. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, spoken to the serpent, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for, or um, that you'll see there's a footnote there that Hebrew actually implies more against. Your desire shall be against your husband. There's going to be clash in the relationship. There's going to be enmity. There's going to be periods of time where there's strain in the marriage relationship as a result of the fall. And certainly we, we, we don't see men deal very, very well with this. And you, you, you can't assume that the accumulation of multiple wives' property is exactly going to help that relationship along, is it? In Genesis 6, prior to the flood, we see sexual immorality is rife on earth. It says that the hearts of men were inclined only to do evil continually. But at least once the flood came and all of that was ended, Noah and his family were okay. They were righteous and holy, right? Have you ever wondered why it is that Noah gets so upset with his son when his son, it says, walks in um, after his, his father is drunk and sees his nakedness. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Verse 22 of Genesis 9. Every other place you read that in the Old Testament, you know what it means, don't you? You know what it means. 
he saw her nakedness. Or in, in, the, in the old version, I don't know why the ESV puts it this way. Um, probably should be a bit more blunt. Um, it's a bit more blunt elsewhere where it's, it's very clear. In, in the old authorized version, it speaks of seeing the nakedness of your sister or seeing the nakedness of, uh, of someone who's not your wife in adultery. This is a euphemism. It's very likely you can do some research if you want to try and back that up. You'll find the research is there. That Ham commits an act of homosexual rape of some sort against his father Noah. Right? Join the dots together. That's why his son is then cursed. That's why he curses his son. You think, oh, his son just walks in the tent and has a laugh and goes out and tells his brothers that, you know, dad's drunk naked in the, in the tent. Okay, dishonoring, but is it something to disown your son over? Is it something to curse your son and his generation over? It seems a bit harsh. The guy raped his dad. That's what's going on here. Genesis 16 finds Sarah, Abram's wife, give him her maid to impregnate believing that she can have a child the promised child through surrogacy this only creates jealousy and the offspring born from Abraham and Hagar Ishmael's descendants would become enemies to those of Isaac Sarah's eventual son even to this day consequences Genesis 19 sees men from Sodom a city of pride An immense perversion attempts actions of homosexual rape against messengers from God, angels. The man of the house offers his virgin daughters for the abuse instead. What is that? Take my daughters. The offer is not taken. Later, Lot's daughters get their father drunk before getting him to impregnate them. The offspring's descendants also become enemies of God's people, Ammon and Moab. Genesis continues, and it's a a narrative filled with sexual jealousy, tricks, rape, a whole city massacred because of one rape, prostitution, and more rape. Sex used for manipulation, false accusations of rape. Think of Joseph. It follows on to Exodus. And while Moses gets the law of God, the people, it says elsewhere, they, they got up to play. That is, to have an orgy. The sad saga continues. In the day of the judges, people did what was right in their own eyes. And the abuse of sex was rife. People set apart to be holy and serving the Lord like Samson. And in the days of the kings, David and Solomon see their lives, their their whole lives, their, their world completely upended by the consequences of promiscuity, adultery, polygamy and incest. We've seen in history the damage, and yet we still plunge headlong to do what God says ought not to be done. The nation of Israel goes through cycles of worshipping fertility gods and goddesses, participating in cultic prostitution for the gods of sex and sacrificing their children for more of it. They offered up their children to Molech and had their children walk through fire. For these fertility gods and goddesses. What, what, what of today? 
Sexuality at its core remains good. This is the thing. We look at all this and we say, oh, that's evil, that's reprehensible. That's wrong. While maybe partaking in that immorality on the side. Or hopefully, we look at it and we say, yeah, that's, that's wrong, that's evil. God saved me out of that. Or God saved me from that. God kept me from that, perhaps. God is good and, and gracious in, in keeping some from experiencing that. But we're still in a world where it's rife. Sexuality remains good as created by God. But it's been so perverted and disfigured that it's necessary to differentiate the positive sexuality God created and the dangerous and distorted sexuality that continues in the present day. Oscar Wilde, interesting guy, he said, everything in the world is about sex except sex. Sex is about power. And that's to some degree true. It's often about marketing, money, and manipulation. That's abundantly clear. And yet, this is far from the only way in which God's intent continues to be distorted. It's 2021. We've progressed since the days of the Bible. All of that is all in the past. Okay, well, there's all of these here. Um, we progressed from those days. We're no longer in the Victorian era. People say as, they say as though that era was synonymous with biblical standards of living. It, it wasn't. We're in 2019. Not 2019. We're in 2021. A couple of these are from 2019. Um, people are free in our Western civilization to be who they want to be without consequences. We are liberated from the parameters of Judeo-Christian worldview. And yet there's an increase of confusion over the most fundamental elements of our being. Is it liberation to not know the difference between male and female? Is it liberation to... I have a headline here. 2009, Wales rugby legend... Gareth Thomas comes out as gay. I remember when that happened. Uh, 2019, Gareth Thomas, ex-Wells rugby captain, has HIV. Cases of sexually transmitted infections are increasing in England. High-risk groups include young people and men who have sex with men. Record high, figures show. Sexually transmitted superbug warning as infections soar 26% in a year. Meanwhile, the UK population has a slowing growth rate. It's a national crisis. UK's birth rate is falling dramatically. Abortion rate hits record high. Rape and sexual assault reports by holidaymakers rise sharply. Rape and sexual assault reports rise tenfold at UK universities. Cambridge University in the spotlight. And others that I won't repeat. Yeah, but, okay, that's, that's problematic, but, you know, that's heterosexual and homosexual stuff. Thankfully, you know, there's some of the other stuff the Bible speaks of. It's not, it's not happening as much. Um, I'm a pedophile, but not a monster. A man, that's a headline. A man was given an article um, to defend his activity and his, his attractions. 
Are pedophiles' brains wired differently? This is the start of questioning. Is this, um, is, are, are we headed now beyond pedophilia being criminalized to pedophilia being just a mental health issue to eventually being tolerated as it was in the days of Jesus in the Roman Empire? Let me remind you of that. It was norm. Pedophilia, a sexual orientation like being straight or gay, one headline said. And there, there was a Hollywood movie that came out a few years ago, very, very popular, Holly, uh, called Call Me By Your Name, featuring, uh, it was an Oscar winner. It, it featured the story, a wonderful story, it was marketed as, of a, a man, a, an older man, pursuing a sexual relationship with a teenager. It was described as beautiful, empowering, and perfectly acceptable. The number of British pedophiles may be far higher than thought, another headline says. UK gender clinic to offer sex change to kids as young as three. This past week I saw that um, from the age of four in Scotland they're going to be allowing children to change their gender. BBC films teach children of 100 genders or more. Boys can have periods too. Primary pupils are taught. Parents keeping 17-month-old babies' sex a secret to avoid gender bias. Minister orders inquiry. A government minister has ordered an inquiry into 4,000% rise in children wanting to change sex. Well, people say, oh, well, if you knew someone who, I do know people. I do know people. I know someone right now. I knew her when she was 14. She was evangelizing with my deceased father-in-law. She was going out on the street telling people about Jesus. Broken family. Some consequences out of that, I'm sure. Confused. Thought maybe she was just attracted to women at first, so she gave that a try. That, that's not what healed her broken heart. So she went to some psychiatrist who said maybe she's actually a boy in a girl's body. She's changed her name and is actively pursuing, despite a plethora of mental health Issues that are screaming out this is a bad idea. At the age of 18, 19, is pursuing total reassignment. There's confusion, rampant confusion. Divorce rates are falling. So, okay, let's look at something positive. Divorce rates, rates are falling. That's great. It's wonderful. They're at their lowest since the 1970s. But guess what? Far few, fewer people are actually getting married. We've gone outside God's way of sexuality. We have adopted all manner of perversions and accepted and tolerated all manner of perversions whilst also not promoting what God says is good. Marriage between one man and one woman. We've offered up 
sacrificed children on the altar of self-indulgence and sexuality through abortion and through abortifacient contraceptions. What is the perspective that we need to have as we begin to close? For the world, sex is just about pleasure, power, and prosperity, or perhaps personal fulfillment. But there is a perspective that we need to have, that we need to pray for, that we need to strive towards, a perspective of God-given sexuality. God created us for so much more than sexuality. And God created sexuality for so much more than the here and now. If this is not the case, then why do we have Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians 6, which says the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. So when Paul is saying the things I don't want to do, I do. He's not speaking of constantly visiting prostitutes. If you're continually excusing your lack of struggle against sin by twisting scripture, stop it. Too many believers I know try to cater to their sin issues in some way by by talking about struggle, and they're not struggling. He says, I'm never going to do this. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Quoting Genesis. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What Paul is saying is that sexual immorality and union with Christ cannot coexist. Sexual immorality finds its joy in sensual experiences with no spiritual considerations and so seeks fulfillment that it can never find. Sexuality that is focused first not on is this my right before the law, but is this right before the Lord sees sexuality captivated by Christ. If you're asking, well, there's nothing wrong with it. Oh, it's legal. Everyone's doing it. Everyone has, has, goes on and you know, looks at, at pornography. Look at the statistics. It's, it's no big issue. I challenged one, one person one time on an issue with lust, and we went through it. We're trying to pinpoint a sin issue in their life. I said, what about lust? And there was a long pause. He said, oh, every, everyone does that. Everyone doesn't make it right. Is this right before the Lord sees sexuality captivated by Christ? Is this what God created this to be? But some people will say, well, this just is trying to keep people from having fun and trying to keep them from a good thing. Look, I, on the basis of the people who I speak to who call Pregnancy Crisis Helpline, 
they are not feeling very happy, put it that way. What they've experienced and having consequences, some of the most difficult calls are where there's two or three guys involved and the, the woman doesn't know who the father is. Um, that's not fun. That's not a good thing. And generally, it's a wake-up call. There's a wake-up call when the, the consequence of, the, of a particular union produces a child. There's a wake-up call that's there that, hold on, what have I been doing to myself? But people say, I feel so ashamed. These aren't even Christians. I feel so ashamed. I don't know. I had one call, a man, twice, back to back. The first time on behalf of a friend. The second time after I wasn't giving him what he wanted and thinking he will call back in a few minutes. Calls back and said, let me level with you. I'm really concerned that this colleague is pregnant and that it might be my child. She insists it's her husband's. They've been married 10 years. He doesn't know about this fling we had. So I was able to then give him a bit of a challenge to not mess about with someone else's wife. Was able to try to point him to the guilt and the shame of the consequence of it. That that should be a warning to him. That this is wrong. And yet... Our society still says, oh, it's, it's not a problem. In the words of Spurgeon, there is no joy in this world like union with Christ. The more we can feel it, the happier we are. Right? You cannot experience union with Christ if you are experiencing union across the board in sexually immoral ways. Sexually immoral unions are not consistent with the profession of faith, of union with Christ. Well, at least I'm not sleeping with someone else. At least it's just porn. Kick that out of your mind. That's another excuse. It's another excuse. Rid yourself of it. You are not fleeing from pornea. You are running to it. And it is a biblical criteria for divorce. If someone comes to me, and we have had this, it was for other reasons as well, and there's an ongoing, unrepentant, constant, pervasive usage of pornography in a relationship that is um, producing generally, it often leads to anger, domestic violence, and other things often come about as well, I will very happily support the woman or we, we, can't, we cannot consider that men are the only ones viewing pornography. 70% of women apparently um, view pornography as well. I will very happily support that individual in applying for a divorce. God hates it. I hate it. Everyone who's a follower of Christ should hate it. But God hates sexual immorality as well. And it is... A criteria that is given by our Lord himself that is acceptable for the parting or the recognition that that covenant has already been desecrated.
As part of union with Christ, we hold that he is at the center of and indispensable for every good thing we enjoy, including sexuality, whether we practice it in the form of marriage between one man and one woman or in the context of self-control and patience and singleness. When we have union with Christ, we don't trust what we feel is best, but we trust what God says is best. Everything in our lives, sexuality included, is redeemed, transformed, and restored when in Christ Jesus, the husband of the church. We're looking to Jesus. We're keeping our eyes on Jesus, and he will supply our every need. We're blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing, Ephesians 1 tells us. He, uh, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He's blessed us in the beloved, Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1 verse 6. He redeems us in Christ, Ephesians 1 7. He gives us hope in Christ, Ephesians 1 12. He seals us in Christ, Ephesians 1 13. And this process of spiritual Unification with Christ as his bride, the church, seen throughout the scriptures, described ultimately as as what you and I should seek to attain, what we should be striving for and praying towards. Ultimately, all of this is pictured by this biblical image of marriage. One flesh, loving, respectful relationship of husband and wife. That goes right back to the beginning. So in conclusion, just as God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, he gave us a prototype of the relationship of Christ and the church in marriage. Sexuality in marriage isn't about me. It's not about you. It's about Christ. It's about his church. It's about his way. It's about Christ loving the church, giving himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The physical union of marriage, God's way, has the perspective that this is about and points to the far greater joy, happiness, and pleasure that we will have when we are finally joined with Christ at his return, the church's spiritual marriage. Our earthly experience of sexuality in marriage is but a shadow of the spiritual unity, joy, and fulfillment we experience in heaven. So whether single or married, let's look to that day when with Christ, we, his church, will stand in glory resplendent and pure. Father, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would kill sexual immorality in us. Kick it out of us. I pray, Father, that if there's anyone here today who's been living in sexual immorality, whether it's physical activity outside of the boundaries of marriage, whether it's pornography, that this would be a catalyst for confession and change. Be glorified in our lives, in our relationships, in our observance of or abstinence from sex which you created. Help us to look at what's right before you.
what honors you, what gives you the most glory. In Christ's name, amen.